Did you read the mission statement on Spotify's F1? No. So whereas last week, Dropbox's mission is to unleash the world's creative energy, Spotify's is to unlock the potential of human creativity. You definitely should get some digs in on them. (laughs) It's an unrestrained hippie world out there. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of Acquired, the podcast about technology, acquisitions, and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today we are covering a company making history the week it makes history, Spotify and their direct listing, which is not an IPO. (laughs) But if it were an IPO, this would be the largest IPO listing, whatever you want to call it, from Europe ever. And the seventh biggest of all time, uh, debuting at about roughly a wow thirty billion dollar market cap. Wow, and tr- and almost a almost a billion uh, a billion dollars worth of shares on the first day traded. Yeah, trading hands. Big company, big shakeup in the industry over the last few years with the rise of streaming, um, and a, a, a big change to the way that uh, the companies go public. So. David, I'm excited to dig in and uh, help understand myself exactly why they did a direct listing, what a direct listing is, and uh, probably more importantly, excited to hear from you um, more about the history of the company itself. Oh, there's always a story, Ben. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you are new to the show, uh, you should join us in our Slack at acquired.fm. Uh, there's over 1,200 people talking about uh, acquisitions, IPOs, uh, tech news as it comes, um, and helping us do research for the show. And, and thanks to listeners who were uh, throwing inter- some interesting stuff about Spotify as David and I were researching. I want to thank the sponsors for all of Season 2, Perkins Coie, counsel to great companies. We have with us today Lee Schindler, a partner in the firm's emerging companies and venture capital practice. Lee, a couple of episodes ago, you told us that early-stage investors looked more like common stock on the cap table as companies progressed onto later funding rounds. What factors contribute to this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's a a nuance there that's hard to capture in a a 30-second soundbite. But basically, when you start modeling out the economics and what drives the return for an early-stage investor no matter how much they've built in downside protection, what they find is that their cumulative return is based much more on their as converted ownership in the company. And so they're benefiting on the upside much more in the way that a common stockholder does. Whereas a later stage investor is getting uh, um, more of a, a return of their money with a smaller upside opportunity. And because of that, no matter how much downside protection an early stage investor builds in, what really moves the needle looks more and more like a common shareholder return. Great. Thanks, Lee. If you want to learn more about Perkins Cooey or reach out to Lee specifically, you can click the link in the show notes or in the Slack. Well, David, before we dig in, uh, 
I spent a bunch of time, I think, um, as the news started to trickle out that Spotify was doing a direct listing, not an IPO, um, you know, several months ago before they priced, before they had a date, before they had an F1, not an S1, uh, to announce. Foreign company issuer. Oh, oh, the, I didn't realize that the F1 is because they were, they were uh, not yeah. a US-based company. Not because of the direct listing, but because they are a uh, foreign issuer. Yep. Ah, that makes sense. Before we dig in, some things that you need to know about what is a direct listing or a direct public offering, um, which is not an initial public offering. The, the biggest difference is the company doesn't take any dilution. So if you're thinking about, you know, what does a company normally do in the IPO? They, they, there's two big reasons. One, they create liquidity for existing shareholders. So everybody who's got stock, um, sometime after that has the opportunity to, to sell that stock and, uh, and, and get some liquidity on that. The other is that the company actually creates new shares. So all the previous shares get diluted, but the company gets to raise money. So they sell the new shares that they've created. Um, they, they raise millions and millions of dollars to have money in their coffers with a DPO, a company doesn't take any dilution and they don't raise any money. So Spotify doesn't have a dollar more in the bank account yesterday from selling shares that they do, uh, um, that they do today, I guess. Don't don't create any new shares. It's literally just, uh, uh, Hey, anybody who is a current shareholder, uh, can now sell. There's no lockup, um, it's just it's, it's theoretically less expensive of a process because you don't have to go do the whole road show and hire bankers and all that, um, which we will get into also. Um, but one thing that was interesting that I that I was sort of thinking through is one disadvantage is that if you are a buyer of this stock, you are actually you have to consider the fact that an insider, somebody who previously had information rights to the company or might be an employee of the company is selling. So you actually have a counterparty who's probably more informed than you on every single transaction of of shares in these early days of trading. Yep, very true. On the other hand, you know, Spotify is a 12-year-old company. Certainly <laughs> the founders and employees, early investors, they want liquidity. Um, and also, you know, we'll also talk about this, but there's been a robust private market for Spotify shares for many years. Um, so yes. trading has been happening there has well before we uh go into the history and facts i found one fun bit of trivia um david there's a very famous company that did a dpo in the 80s that sort of popularized this do you know who it is i do not know so in 1984 ben cohen and jerry greenfield needed funds for their ice cream business Uh they advertised ownership stakes through local newspapers for ten dollars and fifty cents per share uh, with a minimum number of 12 shares per investor, and their Vermont loyal fan base uh, ended up funding Ben and Jerry's ice cream in a DPO for its first way of to, first way to raise capital, raising only seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars from eighteen hundred ice cream loving Vermonters. Oh my goodness! Talk about an addictive <laughs> product. <laughs> I know, addictive I know. and viral, as we will as we will get into. That's right. And interesting to know, we'll come back to this later, they then did a $5.8 million IPO the following year. So they actually Uh did issue new shares once they were their public. So um, tuck that one away and uh, um, let's dig in. All right. Well, history and facts. So as probably a lot of people know, Spotify is a 
Swedish company or founded in in Sweden, uh, not Switzerland, as the New York Stock Exchange learned <laughs> this week. Unfortunately, Sweden is a different country. <laughs> yeah, for those Farther. who didn't see the news, uh, there's a there's a chance that a, a Swiss flag got raised at the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, somebody um, somebody was in hot water. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that at the end of the show. Uh, but it was started in Sweden by uh, two co-founders, Daniel Ek and Martin Lawrenson. Uh, started in 2006. Uh, Daniel Ek, the CEO, who's still the CEO, was kind of like a wonderkind of the Swedish tech scene. He started his first company when he was in school at age 13, hired all his classmates. A lot of fun history, which we'll get into. Um, but to really understand Spotify, you have to go even farther back. Uh, and start with another company that we've also discussed on this show a little bit, uh, a uh, interesting footnote of history uh, called Napster. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> who, I mean, uh, who, who would have thought that uh, the very thing that, you know, d- that destroyed the music industry and uh, uh, brought the the record labels to their knees could possibly have a, a hand in saving them. Well, uh, unfortunately it was the record labels that brought Napster to its knees. Uh, but as we <laughs> shall see, there is a very direct and straight line from Napster to Spotify to today. So Napster, uh, founded in 1999 by the Sean's Sean Fanning and Sean Parker. Uh, Sean Parker is S E A N. Sean Fanning is S H A W N. And then also a third co-founder who doesn't get talked about as much, but is friend of the show, Jordan Ritter, uh, who's based in Seattle now. Um, And there's a really, really good Internet History podcast episode with Jordan about the founding and early days of Napster all the way through the lawsuits with the record labels and shutting down and the aftermath. Uh, Highly recommend that uh, if you want more detail than the couple minutes we're going to spend here on Napster, um, go listen to that episode on over on IHP. So Sean Fanning uh, started Napster originally. He was a college student at uh, Northeastern University in Boston. Um, And he and his friends, uh, well, he was really into hacking computers. This was like the late 90s, kind of end of 98, beginning of 99. Um, Really into hacking. He was really active on IRC and in a bunch of communities and forums, um, sort of trading programs on the internet and um and especially on broadband so these were the days most people at home had dial up uh but colleges all had broadband and so you know having i was i was sort of on the tail end of this but you know i remember you know the biggest uh attraction to going to college you know there was the education and all that but there was getting broadband internet and then stealing files on the on the internet yeah i remember evaluating colleges based on that like they thought it was the most ridiculous thing but you know nerdy kid going into computer science uh i remember asking like on tour guides like what's the bandwidth in the dorms and And there was the whole um remember the internet too that was like a separate backbone that only universities had that was like a faster private internet linking universities anyway this all plays into napster so sean is he's on active in all these online forums uh he's trading files but the including mp3s which people are ripping from cds you know this is big this is the imac you know and all this is happening rip mix burn Uh, rip mix burn 
I mean, don't rip <laughs> because that would be illegal. Uh, yeah, don't burn. Use iTunes. Buy your music. Um, so he realizes there's no good like front end to this stuff. So he's like, okay, I'm well, I'm you know, I'm a CS major. I'm gonna I'm gonna start coding up a front end client um, for trading files peer to peer on the internet. He decides to call it Napster. Um, he releases the first version of it, and it basically just takes off like wildfire. Uh, first at Northeastern, uh, you know, a, a college in Boston. This will we will revisit social apps uh, on the internet starting at colleges in Boston and taking off like <laughs> wildfire. Uh, spreads to lots of other colleges all around the country. Um, he brings on two folks. One is Jordan Ritter, who's also based in Boston. Uh, he takes over backend programming. Um, and another friend that he has from uh, from the IRC Internet Relay Chat community, a guy named Sean Parker. And Sean joins, and he's basically kind of the business head of Napster. Um, and and Parker was, you know, he's kind of like a hacker hustler guy. He had a whole bunch of internet businesses that he started in high school. He decided not to go to college. Um, apparently he was making like 80 K a year while he was in high school, just from internet businesses. Um, so they, uh, the three of them get going, they raise $50,000 from Fanning's uncle and they move out to Silicon Valley. Uh, and kind of the rest is history. Again, you can listen to the IHP podcast, but basically within a span of two years from 99 to 2001, Napster goes from being like the killer app for broadband. I mean, this was the reason I pressured my parents to get broadband <laughs> at my house when <laughs> I was growing up so I could use Napster, uh, or use it better than, than dial up. Um, you know, they get sued by all the music labels, uh, and the company shuts down and kind of flames out in a blaze of glory, uh, all within about two year period. So wow, was that it? Well, the ashes of Napster kind of live on. It gets resurrected as well. Uh, no, but I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking about the time in my life where I was actually using like Napster, Napster, and I had a a zip disk that I would store my music on when I would download it, and I would like you know those are only 100 megs, so I'd like delete the old music that I didn't want anymore, so that I could get the new songs <laughs> off Napster. But the uh, um. I can't believe that was only a two year period. I know it was crazy. Well, because the, the labels sued Napster. Um, they couldn't work out settlements. They sued, they sued Napster. They sued all of the individuals who were working at Napster, all the founders, all the investors, the LPs of all the venture funds. Like they just went nuts. Oh my God. Um, and, and so quickly, and what happens, you know, I remember this, I'm sure you do too, is Napster gets shut down, but then, you know, a million flowers bloom in its yeah, place. LimeWire and, Kazaa, all this stuff. Uh, Kazaa leads to Skype, um, which also will influence Spotify, uh, which we'll come back to. Anyway, Sean Parker, though, he exits Napster after all this has happened in 2001. But he doesn't, you know, he does. he's not one to rest on his laurels. Uh, he founds a company called Plaxo, which we've also discussed on this show, out in Silicon Valley. They're all out uh, in California now. 2002 starts Plaxo. Uh, gets backed by Sequoia, raises money um, from Sequoia. I believe Mike Moritz is on the board. and uh, uh, But Sean's still a kid, um, and he's running this now sort of enterprise-y email um, you know, identity company. Um, he ends up getting pushed out after the downturn in 2004. Sequoia and the other board members push him out of the company, leads to a whole lot of animosity 
ultimately leads to the infamous Facebook pajama pitch <laughs> to Sequoia uh, that is covered in the social network, um, which we'll get to, too. Uh, so Parker's done and, with... And real briefly for anyone who doesn't uh, um, who doesn't have the, the time to go check that out, basically, uh, Sean Parker swore that when he was getting involved with Facebook, they would never go and, and give Sequoia a piece of this. And finally, uh, Mark Zuckerberg... Um, is is persuaded to go and pitch Sequoia and shows up in his pajamas as a show of true respect. <laughs> yes, true, true respect. Now infamous in Silicon Valley lore. Um, so Parker's pushed out of Plaxo, uh, doesn't sit still for long again. He supposedly, his roommate at the time, is dating a girl who's a student at Stanford, an undergrad at Stanford. And Parker sees on her computer one day a site called thefacebook.com. Uh, and this gets dramatized in, in the movie The Social Network, where, where Parker is played by Justin Timberlake, of all people. And, uh, and it's so good. A, a, a girl, he's, <laughs> he's, he has a tryst with a, with a girl on the Stanford campus and then sees it uh, on her computer the next morning. Uh, supposedly, it was actually his roommate's girlfriend. But anyway, next thing you know... Um, Parker basically hustles his way into meeting with Mark Zuckerberg and then Facebook co-founder Eduardo Saverin, because uh, Facebook is still back on the Harvard campus in Boston. Uh, he goes to New York. He arranges a meeting with, uh, with the two of them. This is all documented in the social network. The company's a few months old. Uh, and he basically talks his way into joining the company as its president. Um, and Parker has also become close with Peter Thiel at this point. Uh, Founders Fund doesn't exist yet, but PayPal has already uh, exited to eBay. And Peter is now investing in the PayPal mafia and other folks. Uh, and Peter ends up leading the first true investment in Facebook, buys 10% of Facebook for $500,000. Um, a quite prescient move. Um, and then the, we all know what happens after that. Uh, but... I think, yeah, I think Facebook, it, I think it worked. Uh, that'll be a, a story, actually, that we have already told. You can go listen to our episode <laughs> on the Facebook IPO. Uh, but I think everyone knows what happened. Um, but for Parker, though, in the next year, in 2005, um, you know, remember, he's still super young. He's got to be like, I don't know, 24, 25 at this point. Um, he has a party at his vacation home in California. Ends up getting busted by the police. They find a bunch of drugs at the party. And as a result, he gets ousted from his role as president of Facebook. Again, all this is in the movie, in the social network. Um, so yeah, that was... Sean Parker, Sean Parker was born in 79. So that would mean well, all this is going down in what, 2005? So he's probably 26. Yeah. Yeah. Seven, somewhere, 20, somewhere between 25 and 27. Um so he's like the adult supervision at Facebook. <laughs> uh, uh, it's kind of a miracle that Facebook survived all of this because we'll get into some more stuff here. Um, so, you know, Parker, again, doesn't sit still for very long. He joins up with Peter Thiel, um, who had just at this point started Founders Fund, the VC firm that um, Peter uh, started uh, and uh, after the Facebook investment. Um, Parker joins in 2006, but he still has music and Napster kind of on his mind. And if you remember, um, Facebook in the original early days, Facebook was actually the Trojan horse to realize For what supposedly was Mark Zuckerberg's true vision. 
Wirehog. Which was Wirehog. <laughs> yeah, so. that's right. They were co-developing. It's I think when they were when they were working on they were even doing this in California, I think after they had moved out, yep. they were working on both Facebook, the social network, and Wirehog, the music sharing network, and were going to deploy Wirehog to everyone who had uh, had signed up for Facebook to be sort of the the exactly, David, the Trojan horse, the way that you uh, you bring P2P to the masses. Yep, exactly. And remember, Facebook was only at colleges at this point in time. It wasn't open to the whole public. And um and so Wirehog was essentially Napster uh, 2.0. It was file sharing, but mostly primarily music, uh, and then and then video file sharing had become big at this point. Uh, BitTorrent and other um, applications were 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 very popular. Um, and so actually, that pitch to Sequoia, the infamous pajama pitch uh, that Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook did, supposedly they primarily pitched Wirehog, not Facebook. <laughs> wow. Um, but uh, but Parker, you know, he's he's lived through all of this. He's been sued by the music industry, by all the labels, had Napster killed. He kind of says, like, look, guys, like, now is not the time. Uh, someday, Wirehog, Napster, it'll all come back. But, um, you know, the, the industry has not changed enough. We're going to get sued. The Facebook is working. Let's do that. Let's kill Wirehog. So supposedly Parker was the one responsible for either before or after he left. He stays really involved in the company even after he st- stopped being president. Um, he's the one who kills Wirehog within Facebook. All right. So chapter one, Sean Parker starts Napster and that gets brutally murdered by the music industry. Chapter two, Facebook in its own success becomes the dominant thing and there's there's uh no reason to focus on wirehog there yep wither chapter three so for chapter three we come back to sweden now and to daniel Eck, uh the ceo of spotify so daniel as we said he started his first uh company in 1996 uh at the age of 13 he was in school uh it was a website um uh, web developer for clients, uh, sort of like, uh, um, uh, uh, Tony Shea and, uh, the Zappos guys, uh, when they moved out to California. Um, yeah, man, that was, that was the thing to do in, uh, in high school. Like that was, it, you could make way more money than anybody else. Cause it was this highly valued skill. It was, the work didn't have to be good. Like no, there was no good. I mean, there's no like modern frameworks for doing any web development then. So you just throw something together and, and yeah. adults are amazed that their business is on the internet. <laughs> there's no Squarespace at this point in time. No. Um, so after a couple of years, Daniel's making like $50,000 a month and has 25 employees. He's still, a uh, early teenager um he ends up he does go to college briefly he goes to the kth royal institute of technology which is the top engineering school in sweden uh, but he drops out uh he wants to focus on on startups uh he joins one startup called tradera and ends up getting acquired by ebay then he becomes the cto of a virtual world uh game called stardoll remember when virtual worlds were a big thing yeah. I don't know about you, but I still spend uh, most of my time in Second Life, David. <laughs> yeah. You might be just about the only person left who does that. <laughs> uh, then after that, he starts an online ad company called Advertigo, gets acquired by a company called Trade Doubler, which is also a Swedish company. Um, 
that is sort of like the PayPal mafia, or, or I would we at Wave would say the Airbnb mafia uh, of Sweden. Um, and then after that, finally, uh, Trade Doubler will come back in a second. But after that, finally, Daniel becomes the CEO of a company called uTorrent. Uh, and uTorrent is a BitTorrent client. Um, so now BitTorrent is basically, it's a, it's a peer-to-peer file sharing protocol that is the spiritual successor to um, to Napster, to Kazaa, to LimeWire, to sort of the first generation of file sharing companies. And BitTorrent is, um, I, I don't know fully the technical details, but essentially it shards files, makes it a lot easier to transfer very large files between users. So people are using it for music, but now people are also using it for video, movies, television shows, and the like. Yeah, it has the major benefit of you being able to concurrently download multiple pieces of a file from different sources. So rather than David me taking up, you know, the hogging the entire way to download that one file that you have, I can split it into 100 pieces and and grab 100 pieces concurrently from different people. So the more people that are hosting the file, the more people that um, can can share to the network. Yep. The faster it all moves. And so this is uTorrents based in Sweden. Uh, later that year, this is 2006, uh, after Daniel becomes the CEO, it ends up getting acquired by BitTorrent. Um, and, and this is like piracy, you know, which started with Napster has now reached like a fever pitch. There's actually, I had forgotten about this. There's a political party in Sweden that is formed a legitimate political party called the pirate party. And their pla- oh, I do remember that. <laughs> their platform is like eliminating intellectual property rights from the law, period, <laughs> globally. And and wow. like there are a lot of people that support this. Apparently, in in the you know national elections at the time, they get about seven percent of all votes in the country. Uh, it's crazy. And so like you know everybody, this is the music industry has been decimated at this point. Um, you know, people are worried Netflix has transitioned into is starting the transition into video streaming. Uh, people are worried, you know, BitTorrent's out there. People are pirating movies. You know, what's next? Basically, there's no there's no hope in sight for intellectual property on the Internet. Um, so so has Apple ridden in on their their white knight horse yet? Oh, yeah, totally. 99 cent downloads, 99 cent downloads. So iTunes, you know, is, is hailed as the savior of the music industry. But, Easy beats free, the classic Steve Jobsism. Yep. But iTunes is still, uh, and until the Beats acquisition, uh, which we covered, it's still in the purchasing music paradigm uh, where you're paying money per file. Uh, and then you can play that file anywhere, but it's only one song or one album. Um, it's not like the best experience. And this is where Daniel... And you actually had- can't play it anywhere. It's, it's like... It- I mean, until they switched to the DRM free for the dollar twenty nine instead of the ninety nine cent stuff, it was still restricted to five devices that had to be authorized in kind of a kludgy way. Yep. Um, you literally had to transfer the MP three around because the, the cloud hadn't really blossomed yet, and certainly not streaming. So, you know, there, there. If you think about uh, sort of step functions to the user experience. I'd say, you know, that iTunes was like 20% better because I didn't have to go into shady parts of the internet to try and find this music that fell off the back of a truck. It was like right in my music player, which is great. But And you knew it was the right the, song, you know, the true right, file. Right. Remember all, all the, the crappy files you'd get from Napster and, you know, Kazan. <laughs> it's, like, it's like somebody like uh, playing uh, uh, like 
playing something out of their computer speakers and then re-recording it onto a separate <laughs> thing. So you have this weird like hiss in the background. <laughs> it was great. Uh, wild the wild west. west. Totally. But, but it really wasn't, you know, it wasn't a whole step function better. It was, you know, easy. Sure. It beat free, but it wasn't a paradigm shift. It was still like the same way that I'm uh, all the d- same downsides of transferring an MP3 around. Um, but with the new downsides where it also costs money. Remember organizing your iTunes file library I want my life back. I want all those hours back. I meticulously cared about this. I like, I, for a while tried to get some of those software, uh, uh, some of the programs, I think uh, something about a brain, like brain, uh, sound brains yeah, or something yeah. that would go through and like help you by recognizing the audio signature and filling it in. But even that was wrong. And I'm like, so obnoxious and meticulous about keeping that stuff, uh, accurate that like, I, I have, I've spent weeks, like cumulative weeks of my life. I think this was probably like the biggest, um, you know, wound inflicted on our generation was that like, (laughs) you know, all this product, potentially productive time that we could have been spending playing video games, you know, which we were doing the rest of the time, we were organizing our iTunes file. Well, and I I thought I was going to have that with me for life. Like, I remember, you know, you look at your dad's record collection or, you know, my, my parents also had this like rich CD collection. And I'm like, this is the way, like, this is my music collection that I'm going to carry with me forever. And I remember, I mean, we're, I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but I remember this moment a few years ago where like I got a new computer and I didn't transfer my iTunes library over. I just like have it on an external hard drive somewhere around my house. And it was like this painful, incredible illustration of sunk cost fallacy where I, I just, I like, um, um, like mourning the fact that there's these hundreds and hundreds of gigabytes that I'm just not, not bringing with me into the next chapter of my life. And And, and did anything bad happen from it? Like, no, I, I, I have access to basically, I, I think all of that music, except for sort of some, um, you know, live stuff here and there and some covers and all that. But like, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't opened iTunes and listened to any of that in years. Yep. Yep. So this is really the insight that Daniel Eck has, which is, which is two pronged. It's that the user experience for music is, not just that the industry is broken, but the user experience is broken. And iTunes is not great for all the reasons we talked about. But piracy isn't great either. Uh, you know, BitTorrent and all the spiritual successors of, of Napster, um, you still have the same problem. You got to manage the files. You don't know what you're getting. Uh, it's really, it feels like, you know, all of this feels like technology that's not like productized. And so he has the vision that, there's a better way. Uh, there's actually a better way to consume music that is better than pirating, better than iTunes, and that is what becomes Spotify. So he decides, you know, yeah, the music industry's hard, but I'm just going to go for it. He teams up with Martin Lawrenson, uh, his co-founder, who was one of the Trade Doubler co-founders. Remember, Trade Doubler had acquired um, had acquired Daniel's last company before he joined UTorrent. Um, they fund the company themselves. They figure they can raise venture capital, uh, and you know they'll do some deals with record labels. Get launched. They have this this new you know new paradigm for consuming music. Of course, everybody's going to see how much better it is, and it turns out it's quite a slog to get the record labels on board. Um, so this shocking. was yeah shocking. So this was 2006 when they start the company. Apparently, the name Spotify comes from they're in Daniel's apartment. They're brainstorming names for the company. They're sitting in different rooms and they're shouting back and forth. And uh, 
with suggestions. Martin shouts something, uh, and Daniel mishears it as Spotify. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> immediately Googles it, realizes that the domain name is available, and thus Spotify. <laughs> I love these stories I know. Like, of, of how these things come to be. They later, they later try and justify it as like, well, it's a mashup of spot and identify. No, that's that's not what happened. It's like it's like uh, Pierre Omidyar when asked at an all hands meeting after the eBay IPO, what does eBay stand for? He was like, well, I was going to I've been trying to tell people that it's like Electronic Bay, but I just thought eBay sounded cool. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, so they build uh, they build the product. Uh, they're working with the labels, um, but it takes, as I said, forever um, to get any deals done and the labels in particular don't want to go anywhere near giving the rights to streaming uh to the u.s um so it's actually really fortunate that the company starts in sweden because eventually after basically two years they're able to convince the record labels to let them experiment with this new paradigm of streaming uh, remember netflix is already around at this point like the model is proven um, but only in Sweden. They won't let them do it in any other companies. Um, so finally, uh, finally in October 2008, so almost two years after they start the company, they launch in Sweden with free accounts available by invitation to everyone. So they use the invitation, you know, growth hacking uh, uh, method for free accounts. Uh, but if you want to pay to subscribe, um, anybody can come in and pay to subscribe. So it's like, you got to be part of the club to get in for free, but you can bypass the line if you oh, pay wow. 10 euros a month to subscribe. That's a great, that's so interesting. Cause it, it does, I mean, it hits that critical mass where if you're using a viral invite system like that, it's not hard to find someone with 50 invites to Gmail anymore. Uh, but at the beginning, it's so coveted if you care about being on it and that social. I mean, that's it's so clearly not going to be a long-term revenue strategy, but it's like, hey, if people will pay for this now, we may as well do it. Great way to start. Great way to start. Um, shortly thereafter, in February 2009, um, they launch in the UK, uh, and then they slowly kind of roll out in Europe after that. Um but it's and, it's really working and, as, and it's growing. As a personal uh, aside here, I did a uh, summer internship um, with Exact Target's UK subsidiary in two th- summer of two thousand nine, and I remember reading all this articles in TechCrunch in 08 and oh nine about Spotify and what a disruptive, innovative thing this was, and sitting in my dorm room in Ohio State, being like, "I have, I feel so disconnected." Like yeah. I, you know, I'm I'm here manually curating my iTunes library, and like I keep hearing about the streaming music thing, and it was like the most awesome experience to go and and do that internship in London and get to use Spotify. But then when I came back in what September of of 2009 to get plunged into the dark ages back <laughs> into the U.S. again, it was this really weird experience. Yeah, totally. Well, so summer 2009. This is when. Sean Parker comes back into the story, <laughs> rises from the dead yet again, or rides back in from the sunset uh, on his horse. Uh, so Spotify is growing across Europe. Uh, their labels are slowly letting them go into more and more countries. Um, and towards the end of the summer, they end up raising $50 million uh, in what was their Series B at that point uh, from Wellington Partners, the hedge fund, and Lee Cushing, the um, uh, the wealthy, uh, I believe, Hong Kong based, uh, either Hong Kong or Taiwan, I, I believe Hong Kong based, uh, billionaire. Um, but Sean Parker. So at, at some point, 
at some point, Daniel comes to Silicon Valley, comes to the US, and he meets with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. And apparently, Sean Parker's there too. And he's like, this is it. This is Napster 2.0. This is the way to do it. And, um, but they just closed this round, this $50 million round. Sean at this time had joined up with Peter Thiel as a, as a partner at Founders Fund. And so Sean writes Daniel this email and we'll link I to be- it. I believe he hadn't met him because in this email, he says, I look forward to meeting you in person. I like, oh, Zuck okay. really liked this, but I look forward to meeting you. I see all these. Th- anyway. Uh, so maybe it was that Daniel met with Zuck and Zuck, and Zuck told uh, Sean Parker about it or whatever yeah, and then sean parker went crazy sean parker and, you know, goes crazy fell in love with this thing totally falls in love with it and so he writes this email which is online on the internet published for posterity we'll link to it it's amazing um and so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna quote liberally from this email here it starts off with you know i've been playing around with spotify you've built an amazing experience as you saw zuck really likes it too I've been trying to get him to understand your model for a while now, but I think he just needed to see it for himself. Facebook has been in partnership discussions with various companies to fully integrate music download with the Facebook profile. Most of these deals would have resulted in the wrong user experience, and I've done my best to stop them where they didn't make sense. (laughs) Remember, uh, Parker has no formal involvement with Facebook at this point in time. Uh, In particular, there's no way that iTunes could enable the right experience on Facebook. And, uh, and and he continues, he says, ever since Napster, I've dreamt of building a product similar to Spotify. What's clear... Yeah, if, <laughs> oh, good. Go for it. <laughs> What's clear is that the labels never quite understood the way people really consume, share, consume, share, and experience digital music, and they couldn't admit to themselves that this behavior pattern wasn't changing anytime soon. Uh, rather, they'd have to change their the way they did business, essentially, to make it work. Um, and... And these are so clearly two kindred spirits, like the way that Sean Parker thinks about music and the way that Daniel Eck thinks about music. Like it is, you are, when you read this thing, you're sort of reading the future product roadmap for Spotify as laid out by Sean Parker, which I'm sure Spotify had already thought through. And if if you, if you find, if you find the content of this episode uh, interesting, you'll just like, like love every word of, of reading this. So go check it out in the show notes. Well, and this is what's interesting. So I don't know it it's probably impossible to know whether Spotify had uh, already had on their roadmap, all the things that I'm about to say that uh, Parker lays out, but essentially this is, you know, the first key to Spotify was what we talked about uh, earlier, which is really getting the product experience, right? Like it's a better product experience than either iTunes or, or piracy because you don't have to worry about organizing and files and all. It's just right there at your fingertips, you know, wherever you are on any device. That's great. But that's only the first thing. The second key to Spotify is Facebook and distribution. So yeah, so Sean Sean in his email to to Daniel says, "My goal for the second generation Napster, once we'd gotten around to cleaning up the messy interface, which he actually rails on as an aside, it, it, he rails on Napster's interface for most of this this uh, letter. It's, he so clearly holds himself as like a product designer and is just massively ashamed that they weren't able to sort of clean it up. But anyway, which is funny my, because he was." I mean, he, he was technical, but he was basically the business dude at, at Napster. Like, he was not the product designer. <laughs> yeah. So my goal for the second generation Napster was to implement social and sharing features. This would have dramatically increased the volume of sharing happening through the system. Based on the comment you made to Zuck, I suspect you're moving in this direction. You should build this capability directly into the client using Facebook to connect to authenticate 
and then leveraging the viral communication channels to spread Spotify rapidly around the world. That he says, you guys are likely going to be the first major success story with Facebook Connect, which Facebook had just launched, which was their login platform. Then he says, if you need which some... on its own has been has been quite the topic of discussion. Well, recently. Cambridge Analytica and all that. Um, then he says, if you need some help navigating Facebook platform, in particular the viral channels, I'm happy to lend a hand. <laughs> and this is really how Spotify becomes a $30 billion company. Um so also, this email is a masterpiece of, you know, if you're a VC and you're trying to get yourself into a deal, an investment or win a deal, like <laughs> this is how you do it. Take notes. Uh, because shortly thereafter, Founders Fund comes in and Sean adds another $15 million to the round that was already closed. Uh, Daniel says, of course, you know, I need to have you involved. And, uh, uh, and then Founders Fund and Sean end up, end up investing. Um, but this is, this is it. And so... At this point in time, this is the end of 2009. Um, the company Spotify believes they're about six weeks away from being able to launch in the US. They've been working on deals with the record labels forever. Sean knows dealing with the record labels takes longer than you think. He thinks it's about 12 weeks away. You know, in the next quarter, they'll get out in the US. Turns out to take another two years <laughs> until they until they're finally able to launch in the US. It's not until 2011. Um but that also is very fortuitous for the company because they basically take those two years and they do two things. They foster their relationship with Facebook through brokered through Sean Parker. Um, and they essentially re-architect the entire product to rely on Facebook connect and social login and then distribute every action that every user takes uh, and we'll get into this uh, within Spotify gets distributed out to their Facebook account uh, to the newsfeed. Uh, and this is really what yeah. drives Spotify's viral growth. This is, this is uh, you know, it's the Farmville for music. Like you, you really are just seeing every update that every one of your friends takes in Spotify in, in your newsfeed. Ben listened to wake me up before you go. <laughs> I mean, I seriously, I remember turning publishing on and off specifically when I was listening to certain songs like, Oh, I hope this doesn't go out on my Facebook. And I was one of those people, David, did you ever use, um, um, audio scrobbler? Or yes. La la yes. which last became FM. last or move with yeah merge with last FM. I was like, I I had that hooked into iTunes, so I was always scrobbling to my last.fm account. And then when I realized, uh, so that I enabled the switch for that to get published to Facebook, but like no one else, like it was very much a like homebrew computer club type thing to be sharing all your music data on Facebook before Spotify. And then I remember when Spotify lit up in the US, it was like, holy God, every single person's listening, you know, um, habits are, are showing up here in real time. You know, it's either like you farmed a root vegetable or you listen to, you know, I don't know <laughs> what was popular music at this point in time. Like, uh, uh so hard to remember <laughs> justin yeah. timberlake a, here's the thing that's actually not hard to remember is i'm pretty sure uh I, I heard a great quote once that was uh your your music taste for the rest of your life is whatever you're listening to senior year of college so i would bet if we go look at what you and i actually listen like i was listening to a ton of radiohead and what i listened to today a lot of radiohead yeah i think uh it's yeah. uh that's the way it works colleges that's why it's important it sets your habits for life uh so 2011, basically Spotify has now had time to build this relationship with Facebook. And in July of 2011, they launched in the U S but September 
2011 is the biggest moment in Spotify's history. And that is 2011 Facebook F8, their big annual conference. Uh, during the keynote, Zuckerberg invites Daniel Ek up on stage and announces a major partnership between Facebook and Spotify. Uh, and it's two things. One, at that F8, Facebook had announced, uh, launched Open Graph and the platform the year. Uh, well, the platform had been launched many years before, but Open Graph launched the year before uh, that basically allowed lots of people to now insert activities that people were doing in non-Facebook apps like Spotify, like Zynga into the, the newsfeed. Um, they launched the ticker in 2011, which is basically like a real-time firehose stream. I think this was kind of in reaction to Twitter of um, everything, literally everything, all yeah, your friends are doing, right. streaming by you. And the, it was like that little, you had your regular news feed, but then up in the top right corner, you also had the real-time ticker. Yep. And it was basically just garbage that like got overwhelmed <laughs> with marketing that all these companies were hacking into Facebook. Um but so in this partnership, not only is um, is Spotify a launch partner for the ticker, so you know all what all your friends are listening to, playlists they're making, everything uh, is getting pumped into the ticker and the newsfeed. They also, if you have Spotify installed on your computer and you're on Facebook, there are play buttons on all of these things uh, in the ticker and in the newsfeed. You just click the play button That's on the right. song right within Facebook. It starts playing the the music. And so if you don't have Spotify installed, this is a big incentive to now install Spotify. And you know what? We, we sort of, um, what's the right way to say this? I mean, we sort of criticize and poke fun at the, um, wow, they really hijacked Facebook for this purpose. But this is like the exact perfect product usage fit match where it, it was an amazing, amazing experience as a Facebook user to suddenly have like real time music uh, available as a play button from that little thing. Like uh, at the very least, it was super valuable to see uh, to have social music recommendations. And this is a thing that like we it's sort of assumed today that's like oh, well, Spotify's cool playlist will show me what my friends are listening to or based on my listening habits or, um, you know, a friend will tweet out what they're listening to. But this was like so crazy breakthrough that I, uh, it basically takes the way that people used to uh, word of mouth recommend new albums to their friends or, or old things they had found that were cool and, and bring them into the primary way that you were interacting online. And I, I just think like, it was a brilliant move on Spotify's part to to be able to get this distribution and um, um, you know partner with Facebook in this way. But it, talk about a perfect uh, a perfect reason for Facebook to have a platform. Yeah, like Facebook was never going to do this. They canned Wirehog. They had a million other things to do, and and this made their service so much better. At yep. least in you know maybe not as as uh, crazy as they went with the implementation, but this notion of of being able to experience my music based on what my friends are are listening to. Actually, I think you're right. Like it is unfair to lump Spotify into this whole group of companies. Zynga being you know primary offender number one of just hijacking the newsfeed. Like it actually was a pretty good product experience. Now, do I care that like Ben is listening to Wake Me Up Before You Go or somebody I went to middle school with is like 
no. So they overdid it. But like this, and I think you see this now, like of all these companies, and there was a whole wave of them, you know, Zynga, there were a bunch of social newsreader apps, there were social shopping sites, like all this stuff. All of these companies are dead because they weren't actually like useful products that people wanted. But Spotify is still around and is a $30 billion company now. It's like the only one. I mean, Zynga is still around, but that's mostly because of their real estate holdings. But uh, yeah. And I, one other point on, on Spotify is while it significantly ratcheted back on Facebook, like you don't really see um, see this in people's news feeds anymore. Um, Spotify themselves gained enough of a critical mass where you know, most people or let's let's throw out most millennials in the US who are going to be on Spotify are on Spotify. Yep. I don't know if that's a totally fair assumption, but let's just take that at face value for the moment. Um, they have that experience in the sidebar on Spotify where you can see what your friends are listening to that is snagged from the Facebook friend graph. And so, you know, they're not using it as necessarily as a growth vehicle anymore, but I would say maybe once every other week or so, I will listen to a song because it's in that sidebar on Spotify. And it's still, um, you know, hearkening back to that, it added to the Facebook experience. It adds to the Spotify experience to have a current view of what your social network is listening to. Yep. Yep. Well, Regardless, it certainly works for Spotify. So basically overnight, like, I mean, literally in 24 hours, they get a million signups uh, from this because uh, it's all over everyone's new speed. Wow. Um, and then within the month, they've doubled their user base. They were, well, almost doubled. They were just over 3 million users, um, primarily across Europe at this point in time. They just launched in the US. Uh, and by the end of September, they're, uh, there are, I believe, over 6 million users and over 2 million of those are paying. So wow. yeah. U.S. is a heck of a market to enter. Yeah. Totally, well, especially on the back of Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, you know, bringing you on stage on the keynote. Right. Just, so two, 2 million of the 6 million from the U.S. were, were uh, premium? Uh, that, was, I, that was worldwide. So six, million, uh, got it. 6 million worldwide, 2 million paying premium. And that's Funny, a lot that's, of money. Like that's also that's not so different from today. I mean, today it's in the high forty percent. But um, I mean, that it's, it's really interesting. From the earliest days, they had an incredibly well converting freemium model. Yep, incredibly well converting, um, and they tweak it over time. So uh, originally, it was free uh, to listen on desktop, uh, and then you had to pay to go mobile. Um, mm-hmm. they tweaked that so that it was free on mobile as well, but only shuffle mode. So you couldn't, you, you still can't pick specific <laughs> songs. You can only shuffle playlists. Um, yeah, it converts really well. Um, so basically, you know, on the back of that, like that's the rocket fuel that, that Spotify needs to, um, to reach escape velocity and take off into the large company it is today. So they finished 2012 the next year with 20 million active listeners. So huge growth, like over three X from 2011, uh, 5 million paying subs. So almost three X growth on paid, uh, 1 million paying subs in the U S at the end of 2012. Um, and then they just start raising a ton of money to keep pumping it into marketing and product development too. 
2012, there is 100 million from Goldman Sachs at a $3 billion valuation. 2013, there is 250 million at a $5 billion valuation. They also, funny aside, kind of just like Dropbox, this is the era when everyone wants to be a platform. So Spotify also gets caught up in this, builds the Spotify platform, uh, allow app developers to build apps based on music. <laughs> it's like, wait, really? Yeah, really. Of course, this is all buried in history now, but I completely lot, missed that. Lots of hype. They launched it late 2011 they kill it in 2014 but it's like this is the future you know you can build apps with music and it's like what <laughs> anyway fortunately Which is so funny it's so funny to watch these companies try and launch these like broad-based platforms that don't make sense and then you kill it and then years down the line launch another platform that is like highly targeted something that really makes sense like spotify connect today is yep. freaking awesome like awesome. the ability to play Spotify out to various partners, Sonos, and you know everyone that can hook a a, a speaker or a playback device into Spotify, it it's worked so well. And like that turns out, that was the killer way to integrate with with Spotify for things coming out of Spotify. Yeah, yeah, totally. But they get there, um, and they just keep raising more and more money. They they ultimately end up raising, I believe, about two and a half billion dollars in the private markets. Um, they also in late 2015 and then into 2016 as you know facebook is now no longer facebook has vastly locked down its platform you're not getting all this crazy distribution um they really catch the next wave really well too and time it well with machine learning and recommendations uh they launched the discover weekly playlist uh machine learning generated uh algorithmically generated playlist unique to each user with new songs that they think you'll like or songs that you don't know well that they think you'll like they launched that at the end of 2015 radar which is new music from artists you like launches in 2016 along with the daily mix um and this drives kind of the next wave of of growth in the company um and engagement and so by the end of 2016, they have 40 million paying subscribers, which like that's and, huge growth. And just to take a pause on sort of um, uh, internal innovation, it's worth pointing out that the Discover Weekly playlist was a like very much an experiment within the company before they launched daily mixes before they came out with release radar before that got promoted to like a first class thing on the home screen it was just one of the playlists available to you like 70s 80s 90s discover weekly and they had this framework which were playlists on which they could sort of test this new concept of can we algorithmically generate stuff that people will want to listen to and be accurate in that and improve in that and it's really interesting i mean the, the innovation that the company had that they have sort of a few innovations over their lifetime but that ultimately made them a 30 billion dollar company it was streaming should be the way that this that this world works and we're going to persevere with the music labels to make that happen facebook is this amazing distribution vehicle so we're gonna you know that that's that's our sort of innovation number two and we're in the the wave of number three right now, and they really had a nice framework internally to be able to um, not only test something, but then like now we're seeing really double down on it as it was working and promoting it to like a first class piece of the platform. Yeah, and I think it also it's a good point we we didn't really cover earlier. This has always been a thread through Spotify's product history, but um, is best expressed in in these in these playlists in Discover Weekly and Radar and Daily Mix is this idea of the playlist like playlists had been around, you know, since recording cassette tapes, you know, in the eighties. Um, and then certainly iTunes had playlists, but what was great about 
Spotify is they really made playlists the first class citizens. So like, and this was yeah. part of what they got the labels back on board with is whereas iTunes is a singles focus, like you, you are buying individual songs. You can buy albums, but like people buy songs with Spotify, the focus is on playlists and that kept people engaged, engaged with artists um, and, and listening a lot more. Uh, and when the labels were getting paid, labels and artists are getting paid based on number of streams, keeping people streaming more, listening more aligns incentives a lot better. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so end of 2016, 40 million paying subscribers. Now, some of those are family plans. Some of those are student plans. We talked about this in the beats episode. You know, it's not quite fair to say that, um, you just multiply that by 10 and that's how much their $10 per month or euros per month, um, is the, is the cost. And that's how much they're making per month. But even if you multiply it by five, be really conservative, that's $200 million or euros in subscription revenue per month. Um, that's a lot of, a lot of revenue. I mean, that is a serious business. Wouldn't it be great if they could keep, you know, a ton of it instead yeah. of just like, uh, you know, like great. 10% of it. Wouldn't that be great? Well, they keep 30%. Yeah. Well, ultimately, so I guess where I was going with this is ultimately there during that year and in, in 2016, um, their, uh, uh, gross margins on the premium stuff is, uh, is 16%. Um, the ad consolidated stuff, they actually lose i'm sorry the ad supported stuff they actually lose 12 percent, so it's a negative 12 percent gross margin and, and they're consolidated as uh is 14 percent, which jumped up the next year due to sort of a, a deal negotiation but um you know the, the thread as we uh, as we get into um sort of narratives around the ipo which we'll we'll go to in a few minutes um i'm sorry the the uh direct listing not the ipo is is certainly that it's you know, that it's incredibly low margin business relative to a lot of these other technology behemoths that have, uh, have really become huge in the last few years. Yep. Well, to get us there quickly, uh, companies growing, as we mentioned earlier, there's always been a robust secondary trading market for the stock. They've raised all of this money. They don't need to raise any more money. Um, we'll get into the business model and, uh, in a minute in narratives, but, at the very least, they have a very nice cash flow dynamic where their subscribers pay them upfront every month uh, the $10 or 10 euro a month subscription fee. They don't pay their revenue share. Uh, Spotify doesn't pay the revenue share out to the labels until after the end of the month. So um, just like Amazon in this regard, they have a positive or a negative working cash flow cycle um, that allows them to be cash flow positive, even if they're not net income positive. Um and in the meantime, they had hired uh, a guy named Barry McCarthy as their CFO, who is their CFO. He had been the former CFO of Netflix, also took a short detour after that to be Klinkle. the COO of Clinkle. Uh, <laughs> sad. We're, we're not going to talk about that one here. <laughs> that would be... My if only if goal looking... for this episode was to get to yell Clinkle. Clinkle. Oh my goodness. One of my friends in business school did his summer internship at Clinkle. <sighs> That's for another episode. Anyway, <laughs> fortunately for Barry, he moves on quickly from Clinkle and becomes the CFO of Spotify. And Barry's the one who really leads the charge saying, why would we do an IPO and give 7% of the offering, A, raise money when we don't need it, take dilution of the company, give 7% of the offering to banks, let's just do this direct listing. Um, so they do. They set a reference point. So there's no, there's no 
pre-sales, like in an IPO, uh, they set a reference point for trading of $132 a share, or uh, which equates to a market cap of about $23.5 billion. That's where shares have been trading on the private market. Um, they announced that they're going to do the first trade publicly on uh, Tuesday, April 3rd, which they do. It opens. The first trade happens at $165 a share and 90 cents, right around a 30. Which is... Which is- Totally way higher. Like the, yeah. the reference price is 132. Reuters reported that it would be between 145 and 155. Um, you know, it just just kept climbing up to the day. Yep. And so that's about a $30 billion market cap. It ends the day at $149 a share or $26.5 billion market cap still up. Um, as we alluded to, the folks at the New York Stock Exchange mistakenly raised the Swiss flag outside the both, exchange. They both start of, with S. They're Europe. Of the it's fine, David. Swedish flag. It's okay. That's quickly rectified. Uh, but this morning here, we're Thursday morning, two days later, um, still trading about $150 a share. So right around just below a $27 billion market cap. Yeah. And the really important thing here sort of for the future of direct listings is, you know, will it will it sort of settle here? Because the thing that everyone was really worried about is there's going to be all this incredible volatility. They didn't hire bankers to stabilize, um, you know, that that if it if it ends up falling below one hundred and thirty two dollars a share, that's below the last uh, uh, last place it was trading in the private markets. Um, but, you know, all indicators are, are positive right now. And uh um, Spotify did a few really intelligent things to sort of mitigate some of the possible risks of, uh, of doing this direct listing and having all the volatility. Um, the first of which being they actually did hire investment banks. Um, and, and as you sort of read a lot of these articles, it, it becomes clear that like it wasn't one, it wasn't two, like they, they, they paid, uh, Goldman Sachs, Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Allen and company, um, Morgan and Stanley is is technically serving as financial advisor, but ultimately they're gonna they're gonna pay forty four to fifty million bucks in banker fees. Yeah, um, advisory fees. Qu- yep, yeah, it's quite comparable to what they would have paid if they had actually IPO'd. Um, it's it's sort of shy of uh, recently. If you look around, um, Snapchat paid over sixty million, but but if you look, you know, Dropbox was only around thirty million. Mongo was at like. 17 million stitch fix was at 7 million like they're actually despite the fact that that uh they are doing a direct listing and there's lots of other reasons why that's awesome um they are uh, uh they are paying a hefty fee out to banks to help uh i think to help stabilize or help craft the messaging or or something yeah i'm not sure exactly what the banks are doing i think it's probably their institutional sales forces that are um uh, marketing the stock to large institutional investor clients, hedge funds, mutual funds, and the like. Um, I think that's probably what they're paying them for, which is really what a bank would do in an IPO process. Sure. It's just yeah. that they're doing it on an advisory basis instead of taking literally buying the shares from the company and then reselling them to those mm-hmm. investors. So, yeah, well, and, should we get into from that? Yeah, one other thing, the other really smart thing that Spotify did leading up to this is they, um, you know, they they encourage sort of second market uh, trading for their employees. And they, um, you know, the more volume gets out there to be traded, the more certainty they have around what it's going to be in the in the public markets. And so um, I, I don't know exactly what they did. I, this, I, I think they waived, they waived the, basically their right to, um, be the ones purchasing when employees are selling their shares, um, and, and to, to kind of encourage this. So, um, 
Should we get into narratives? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So one thing that's interesting to take a look at before we get in, before totally doing narratives is what the cap table looked like. So um, Daniel X still owned 25.7% of shares. Yeah. And Martin I mean, owned uh, 13.2%. So that's almost 40% among the two co-founders. That's like a, a Dropbox level yeah. of ownership. It, it's more, the, more than Dropbox. It, yeah, they took on so much capital. Yeah. I mean, they, they've raised two and a half billion dollars and it's been 12 years. Yeah. Well, they raised at such high valuations along the way. Um, and again, you know, this is narratives here. They raised at such high valuations. Their revenue numbers were so impressive. Right. Um, but the question is how much of that is, you know, going to flow down to the bottom line after the labels take their right. 70% right. cut. Well, it's so funny to be doing this right after Dropbox, because if you look at them, you know, these ownership percentages are so high and you say, why are they so high? Growth is an amazing leverage point and, uh, and, and, um, uh, profitability or, or close to profitability, or at least running a lean operation and generating a lot of cash is also a really high leverage point. So both of these companies grew like wildfire monetized from an early day. Um, and, and, you know, that just gives them a lot of, of, uh, ability to, um, to raise at really high valuations and, and bring a lot of cash into the business with a lot of certainty in the future. Yeah. But the difference between Dropbox and <laughs> Spotify as I'm sure you'll get into. I actually didn't look up. What Do you know offhand what Spotify's overall gross margin is? Um, I do. I do. So it actually went up uh, last year because of a renegotiation with the labels right. where Spotify said, look, we want, a, we want a higher take rate. Um, but if we don't grow and hit our numbers, uh, you get to take more money. And so it went from, if you look at their consolidated gross margin from 2015, 16, and 17, it was 12%, then 14%, and then a huge jump last year to 21%. So they're definitely uh, betting the farm on, on future growth here right now and you know, being nicely compensated for it from the labels. Yep. So it's uh, 21%. Gross margin, twenty one percent, yeah. And Where and for folks that are that haven't stared at gross margins all day, uh, what you would want from a technology company is really high fixed costs and really low variable costs. So th that would be a really high gross margin because you your actual cost of revenue is uh, is is very low. So if you look at something like a Facebook, they tend to hover around an eighty five percent gross margin. Yep. And uh, Google, I think, is high eighties, low nineties. But Dropbox, getting back to that comparison, uh, is uh, just under 70. So 67% gross margins currently at Dropbox. Uh, so all of this is significantly higher. And, and Ben, just like you were saying, like the reason this is important is like, you know, tech companies require a huge amount of fixed costs in the engineering, in the you know, servers, all the stuff that you need, um, uh, the employees that you need to uh, build the companies. Um, but then... The business models tend to be so scalable on a marginal cost basis. Like it doesn't cost Facebook anything to sell another ad or Google anything to sell another ad word. Dropbox, it does cost them in storage uh, to bring on new customers. But yep. especially as after they've moved off AWS, it doesn't cost them that much. You know, they're still making 70% gross margins. Right. Not the case with Spotify. That's right. That's right. So getting into the narratives, um, a, a quick snapshot of their business today. They're, they're unprofitable. Um, in 2017, they did $5 billion in revenue, which is awesome. Uh, but they took a $1.46 billion loss. So, you know, you, you would, you would hope to see that, um, 
sort of change soon where they were actually generating uh, generating a profit rather than generating a billion and a half dollar loss when they have five billion in revenue, but they're not there yet. Um, on their balance sheet, they have $582 million of cash available. So about half a billion bucks of, of cash. Um, now, if one thing that's interesting to note, so they didn't raise any money because this wasn't an IPO. They've got half a million dollars of cash available on their balance sheet, but they're losing a, a billion and a half every year, um, or at least at their current run rate. So unless they get profitable fast, uh, they will actually need more money to continue funding the business. Um, now, uh, yeah, I think there's, there's a yes, but here. Um, yes, but if you look at, you know, because of some of the dynamics we were talking about earlier with the negative working cash cycle, they actually are cash flow positive, operating cash flow positive. So in 2017, they generated 179 million euros in operating cash flow. Um, mm. Now they still lost money uh, on a cash basis for the year right? Um, because they're having to pay off uh, interest on, um, on the debt that they have, the convertible debt that they have. Um, so, you know, yes, they will eventually need to turn um, that income positive. That's the bet here, uh, but they are cash flow positive on a, uh, they are cash flow yeah. positive, but it's not, anywhere near the levels that Dropbox is at. I believe, well, I can look it up quickly. I believe Dropbox is um, generating right around half a billion in operating cash flow right now and growing quickly. Spotify growing too, but like they're kind of hamstrung by these margins. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for that correction. That's a, that's a, that's a great point and not to be overlooked. Um, and the last thing I'll say is growth is spectacular. Like if you look at revenue growth from 2016 to 2017, they went from 3.6 billion up to that that five billion number. Um, you know, when you're generating that much revenue to be growing like that is is really, I mean, they're they're in a they clearly, uh, um, you know, hit a high pressure valve when they were uh, uh, looking around for what market to enter. Um, this doesn't look like it's going to stop flowing anytime soon. Um, they, uh, they have 159 million monthly active users, 71 million of those, which is almost half are, uh, are paying, paying premium subscribers, which means they're, they've, um, switched off the ad tier and into the, the paying tier, um, which is, uh, they have double the number of, of Apple, Apple music subscribers. I actually don't know if that's subscribers or, or monthly active users, but they sort of brag that they're double Apple music, um, so, you know, that, that, uh, I think it's, I think it's huge paying. growth. Business. I think it's subscribers. I think it's paying. Yep. Yeah. I think that, I think that's true too. Uh, so real quick, I looked up Dropbox. So Dropbox 2017, $330 million in cash flow from operating activities, uh, Spotify, $179 million. So roughly a little less than twice as much uh, for Dropbox. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thank you. Uh, so if you look at what Spotify says in their, their F1, um, you know, they're, they're, they're advertising that streaming is the, the tidal wave on here and it's, it's very early days and it's, it's growing globally. Um, that smartphone growth is a huge driver that Spotify is the market leader in a huge way. And even this behemoth Apple can't, can't catch them. Um, they use data in a huge way to provide this personalized experience. They're running as an operationally lean business. Um, and that, that they really saved music. 
Like they, they are not shy about this story. The way that they open their F1 is really by talking about um, the incredible decline that the music industry was in and, uh, and how streaming sort of pulled them out of it and saved the music industry. And so the way they talk about themselves, you know, the, the skeptics would argue that, um, you know, they are really at the mercy of these, these labels and they have no bargaining power and they have no pricing power. And the, what Spotify says is, look, like the music labels love us because we save the industry. And there's all these ways for both artists and labels um, for everyone to do better because the way that we enable people to listen to music actually creates growth for music. Yep. And I think all that is is, is true. Um, you know, it's uh, uh, Sean Parker and Napster 2.0 <laughs> working right. with the music industry. Yeah. So what would the skeptics say? Um, you know, it's, I haven't heard as much about this in the last, call it six months, but for the few years before that, it was like Spotify was a trope. Like it's a terrible freaking business. They're always, the, the suppliers have all the leverage. The, the uh, music labels take a huge cut. Not only do they have take a huge cut, but there's a most favored nations clause in the, uh, in their, um, um, agreements where uh, basically for Spotify to get a better rate, they have to go and agree and get all of the major labels, the sort of four or five major labels that make up 85% of the, the music listened to on Spotify to agree to this new lower rate. Um, it's a cartel. You know, it's a total cartel. And unlike uh, the the technology business of uh, let's let's look at Netflix for example, where they actually um, license the shows and pay an upfront cost of you know you look at House of Cards, a hundred million dollars to create House of Cards internally, or a or not license, license that or, Netflix creates the shows that Netflix creates the show or or pays a license fee. Sorry, I conflated those to uh, existing back catalogs of, from from other right. existing produced shows. They pay a one-time fee up front and they own that for a certain number of years. Whereas, uh, and, and so they can generate as much revenue as they want for it. Yeah. They get to keep the revenue and it's just a sort of a one-time cost. Um, but if you look at what Spotify is doing, compare and contrast, every single stream, um, you know, has a percentage that's paid out to the music labels and therefore, um, you know, Spotify cannot outrun their costs. It's it's this yeah, it's this difference between variable and fixed costs. Like Netflix has an even greater amount of fixed costs versus Spotify, both because they're paying up front a, a fixed price to license the the shows and, and movies that they didn't make, and then a lot of money to actually make their own content. Uh, but then when they all their revenue they just keep all the revenue. Um, they don't have to pay a percentage of right. their subscription fees to the movie studios. It's the opposite. What you're saying with, with Spotify, where, uh, a percentage, a large percentage of their subscription revenue is getting handed right back to the labels. So as the subscription revenue grows, so does the amount that they have to pay. Yep. It's uh, a good, good, succinct explanation. Uh, you know, Skeptics also argue they they have catalog parity with Apple Music, whereas if you look at something like a Netflix, um, I have all this great stuff available on Netflix. Oh, gosh, there's this entirely non-overlapping subset of stuff available on HBO Go. 
maybe I'll pay for both. I'm sorry, HBO now, um, maybe I'll pay for both. And, and there's actual, um, um, people actually do subscribe to multiple of these things. And if you look at uh, a music s- subscription service, basically no one subscribes to multiple uh, because they have the same back catalogs. Yep. And skeptics would say that, congratulations, you have algorithmically generated playlists. Uh, I don't think that's differentiating enough to make people switch or uh, make artists want to launch with you know any sort of exclusivity or anything like that because it's still only ever going to be this subset of the market of listeners they could release to by releasing on both. Um, and lastly, that, that music is something that's just going to be owned by the platform owners. So it, it, sure, you've done well, Spotify, but you had a 10-year or 9-year head start on Apple Music, and God, they're growing so much faster than yep. you are. They will catch you soon. I think when, they, we did the bundle Beats with the epi- when we did the Beats episode, was it 36 million subscribers, I believe, that Apple Music is at now? So roughly half of Spotify is paying subscribers, and that's in a... Uh, two years, two and a half years since it launched. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a farce for Spotify to say we have twice as many subscribers as Apple music. Like you are almost a decade older than Apple music. Yep. Yep. And they're, they're coming up fast. And for all of Spotify's really brilliant, as we talked about distribution tactics, uh, you can't beat being the default (laughs) player on the device. (laughs) Uh, but then also, you know, there's another, there's another, um, I don't, so that who, that was what the skeptics would say. I mean, uh, I use Spotify. I don't pay for Apple Music. I'm uh, I, highly ingrained in the Apple ecosystem. Like maybe they're the ones who can do it. Yep. Well, I was going to say there is another um, player, you know, lurking in the shadows here, uh, which is what do I do? Uh, I use Amazon Music, and that's Jeff Bezos. Your margin is my oh. opportunity, even if your margin is very small. Uh, David, that's because you don't like music. <laughs> <laughs> I do like music. I actually converted. I now pay for Amazon Music, uh, but it's cheaper. I think it's seven bucks a month, either six or seven bucks a month. Um, but because it's baked into Prime, either. So when you, you pay for it, your 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 twelve percent gross margin is my opportunity. Like, it, <laughs> well, like, welcome to welcome to Bezos Land. You know? Yeah, uh, because it's all bundled. It's all part of Prime. Uh, Amazon can have a totally different business model um so amazon music unlimited which is what you pay for is cheaper than apple and spotify just as good um i mean maybe there's some small things on the margin that like spotify does better with with algorithmic recommendations and apple being baked into the device but like ultimately especially with in an alexa world now being the default on alexa um that's very powerful um apologies to all the speakers of our listeners who we just activated (laughs) lady a Uh, (laughs) you know uh and price is is meaningful to a lot of people, and then, and then there's the free tier for Amazon, which is you have complete control. It's a limited catalog, but it's most of the stuff that you care about if you're a casual music listener. And then it's just completely free with Prime, and you can mm-hmm. play directly. You're not limited to shuffle mode. Uh, you can play on any devices. Um, you know, it's it's a big disruptive force. Yep. Yeah, I'm not going to bet on it, but um, good case. I think. Well, I think uh, it's. What, what, why wouldn't you bet on it? I don't think Amazon gets music. Like, I think. Um, I mean, we we've seen them try with Amazon MP3. Like, they they've taken multiple stabs at music. I think it's a it's a um, an animal that you have to have the right DNA to create. I think that could be, and we talked about that a lot on the Beats episode. I do think, though, there's an element of segments of the market. Like, 
Mm. There are a lot of like, how big is Spotify's TAM really of people who are going to pay 10 bucks a month in the world for music? Like they already have 70 million people doing it. How many more people will do it? Especially when there's an alternative out there of like, I could get something that's like 60% as good for free. Yeah. I mean, for free that, yeah. So I think Amazon will take share on the f- from Spotify's free tier or better yet since it's a growing market will take the share that would have gone to Spotify's free tier yep. I, I I don't I wouldn't bet on them for the the subscriber revenue yep well I think there you have the narratives on, on Spotify <laughs> <laughs> yep all right into what would have happened otherwise let's do it um I well mean, they could they could have IPO'd <laughs> they could have IPO'd. Yeah. Um, now they are generating cash from operations. Um, so they don't need the capital. They've already raised a lot of capital. Um, the Here, Here's a crazy thing that could happen. I was foreshadowing this a little bit earlier with the Ben and Jerry's thing, but they could IPO. Like now <laughs> that they're publicly traded, I mean, six months or a year or two years, like, if they need to raise cash, I mean, it's it's like doing a, you know, dilutive secondary offering yep. that a, a, a public company would do uh, in, in a secondary in offering. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And they could just do that as their IPO. Um, and as I was thinking through this, David, like, I, I, I want to make sure I'm thinking about this right. So let's hypothetically say they do this. They did this direct listing and started trading at um what 165 um and it's up to 150 right it's or it fell to 150 but it's at 150 right now um let's say it goes up to 180 or 200 in the next year or so um and then they go and do an IPO at 200 they basically get to raise cash later and mm-hmm. take less dilution yep 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 and and so, like, if there were these liquidity reasons why they wanted to be public, but they thought about it like, huh, I don't think we actually need the need the cash right now, so let's not take the dilution. Let's take some dilution later if we do need to raise capital. Like, you could see that this is maybe only chapter one and that the, the dilutive offering happens later. Yeah, I mean, I think the question, though, is will they need capital I think they they don't in in their current business model. They will need capital mm-hmm. potentially if they try and move to the Netflix playbook of we are going to develop our own artists and make our own content. Mm-hmm. Now that's been bandied about in music, and you know there was the famous Taylor Swift you know exclusive with Apple, and then that didn't work out. Ben Thompson's written a lot about this. Does it make sense in music to have exclusive content in the way it does with video? Unclear. Um, yeah, because he, here's the thing is in, in video, since people are used to paying for multiple or switching between, if somebody launches something like Stranger Things, then you're going to switch to that provider or you're going to add, add provider yeah. if you want to watch that. Uh if you're an Apple Music subscriber and Taylor Swift drops her new music video only on on Spotify, you're not switching. Like you're highly, highly ingrained with all these playlists and configuration and friends that you've made in one service or the other. You're probably not going to do it for a new album. I mean, maybe for like 
two or three artists that are all like if Jay-Z and Beyonce, here's the thing they actually do with title. Like if, if, if you look at like, it hasn't worked for anyone yet. Well, I think it doesn't work because it doesn't make sense for the artists. Like, especially in today's industry as an artist, you make your money from shows and from branding and merchandising. Yeah, so you like, need maximum you need exposure, maximum reach. You wouldn't want to artificially limit, you know, your audience. Um, whereas in video, it's a lot different. Like you have a lot more niche content uh, and people are used to, you know, oh, this will be this is an HBO exclusive or whatever. Like, you know, they're uh, right. The paying directly for content is a lot more ingrained in uh, in people's uh, psyche. Yeah. Plus, you also have the actors who actors act in content across, uh, you know, creators and publishers, essentially, like just because um yeah, Will Smith did that exclusive movie. I forget what it's called with Netflix. That doesn't mean Will Smith can't go do his next movie with Disney or Fox or you know, well, Fox is part of Disney now or you know Universal or whoever. Whereas in music, like Taylor Swift becoming a Apple exclusive or Spotify exclusive, that means she's not gonna ever release content on the competitors. Like that doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. Something would have to change in the ecosystem where. Um, people would have to actually subscribe to multiple, multiple providers, which I don't think is going to happen. Or people, artists would actually start generating more of their revenue from streams rather than from streams being their top of funnel and then monetizing fans more through shows and all that. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, I don't think they need the cash. Yeah, well, then it makes sense that they didn't do an IPO. Yeah, which I think was the whole argument of Barry McCarthy, the CFO. Uh, right, right. And it's super, the thing they touted, which I don't think is the main driver, but it's super employee friendly because they they don't have this uh, six-month lockup period. In fact, the only group I think actually, uh, I think Tencent is restricted from selling shares for some amount of time, but um, that was a one-off thing in, in, uh, in their agreement and all employees were free to trade on day one. Yeah, so Tencent is a, I think, 7.5% shareholder of Spotify. They did a deal with Tencent at the end of last year, end of 2017, where they essentially swapped equity stakes in Spotify and with Tencent Music Entertainment, which is their Spotify competitor in China. And this is, Spotify was never going to be able to launch in China, just like Facebook and Google haven't. This is a way to get access, you know, to, Mm. likewise, Tencent, TME, Tencent Music Entertainment was not ever going to be dominant in the US or Europe or the like. This is a way to go global essentially for both companies. So it makes sense that there'd be a lockup for, um, for those. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, should we get into tech themes? Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, well, mine, so I, in these uh, IPO ones, I want to broaden to sort of tech and investing theme. Um, this big, uh, the big one for me that, that I think is the, I'm going to use your phrase, the thing that's been bandied about in the press a lot recently, uh, has been, are we going to see more direct listings? Because, you know, if this can be a shift away from the sort of, um, 
walled garden of Wall Street and paying the banker fees and, um, you know, having to ingratiate yourself to that world, which people have just railed on for, you know, particularly in Silicon Valley, how dumb the process is. I mean, there's Dick Costello has done a lot of great interviews about um, how silly it felt to go do the exact same presentation 80 times on the road show and um, have to really be a dog and pony show. And so to the extent where, you know, Spotify can put up one stage presentation on that they video recorded and then everybody can just look at that and then they don't fly to New York and bring half the company and ring the gong and throw the parties and give the interviews like maybe this is the way of the future. Yeah. yeah. Well, there are a bunch of problems, and, too. Like, you know, the Dropbox IPO last week, like, you know, as uh, it was a big day, as we said, in, in Silicon Valley here, lots of Dropbox employees and investors. But like it wasn't too, because they're all subject to the lockup, like, you know, uh, right. and then, and then, you know, depends, then the lockup comes off, but like, maybe that depresses the stock. A lot of people are selling. Sometimes companies, you know, will relock up their employees, investors to prevent the stock being depressed. Um, Traders build the lockup into their models. Yep. Yep. It just, you know, it kind of sucks. And, you know, the plus the having to create new shares to sell to the public if you don't need the cash and you always have to do basically a minimum of seven percent of the company like why would you do that you know i mean in these later rounds that drop uh, that spotify was raising they were selling you know one percent or less of the company why would you now sell a huge amount of the company yeah i mean it, I, the criteria that i basically came up with is fourfold for uh, will we see this in the future one is i think you have to be a household brand name like spotify like one of the things the bankers do on the road show is like really familiarize the institution and large blocks of potential share owners with with the company lots of people were already very familiar with the company yeah you have to not need the cash so you know that that already limits lots of companies um you have to have a, this very cash efficient business model um, and, uh, we need this Spotify price to hold steady. And if, if it doesn't, I think it'll scare off people from doing this for a yep. long time. Yep. Um, and, and it's not that volatile right now. It's done a, a nice job of staying around where it should be, but it's, it's bounced around a little bit. So I think the next few days are going to be, uh, telling. Very telling. Yeah. Well, I think there's one nuance I'd add to your first point, which I totally agree with is you have to be a known name. I don't think you have to be like a consumer household name. You have to be known amongst the institutional investor community. Um, but that's also happening because those those mutual funds, those hedge funds have been investing in private companies over the last five years. Yeah, so they know point. these names, these these stocks, uh, um, you know, whether it's whether it's T. Rowe Price or Tiger or Wellington or, you know, like all these, I, I don't know about T. Rowe, but, or, but all those other firms were already shareholders in Spotify. Uh, mm-hmm. So they already, and these are the biggest owners of public stocks uh, in the market. Um, so a lot of that education and marketing is kind of already happening while companies are private. I have one self-serving tech theme that I thought was just fun to read in their F1. Do it. So they list they list podcasts in their uh, uh, yeah. They have a services section and they list new content offerings. And one of them is video, and one of them is podcasts. And I have been noticing, like you know, as as much as I have held the belief that um, Spotify uh and soundcloud and anyone else that's starting to work in podcasts um 
just isn't doesn't do it well relative to dedicated podcast apps. You know, it's now the it's I don't know if it's on like this on everyone's app, but at the top of the home screen on my little homepage for Spotify, it's listen to these podcasts. And they say in their F1 um, that which this is a this is a big market stat about podcasts that there were 348 million podcast listeners across all platforms worldwide at the end of 2016, going up to 484 million in 2017, which is wow. a growth of 39 percent year over year. Wow. And their quote on that is, this engagement presents a significant opportunity for Spotify as we believe we have the ability to enhance the podcast user experience with a better product that is focused on discovery, which is notoriously the problem in podcasts. Think about the dynamics are very different. The problems are very different. But think about the issues with the music industry when Spotify came along and just fixed them from a product perspective, just like Dropbox just fixed, you know, file sharing, uh, mm-hmm. a different type of file sharing. Uh, the podcast, in- this is where the podcast industry is today. Like the market is there. It's growing like there's huge, but like the, the industry and from a product perspective is completely broken. Like somebody, somebody needs to come along and just fix it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I still don't know if it's going to be them. I like the bet on the industry right now, and I just think it's kind of fun that they had in their F1. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's going to be Spotify either. Like, it's it's hard for big companies to do this. Um, anyway. It's kind of hard for me to believe that Spotify is worth $30 billion. I mean, maybe I'm getting into <laughs> gr- grade, the, grade the DPO right now, but, like, I mean, think about, like, Uber just had the share tender for, like, 50-ish billion and like you look at Airbnb's most recent private valuation, like, I, uh, I, is Spotify really a thirty billion dollar company? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, we're just so divorced from fundamentals at this point. You know, like Spotify is definitely a thirty billion dollar company if you if you value it on a revenue multiple, hundred percent. But mm-hmm. but their margins, their gross margins are structurally very different from, you know, other tech and software companies. Um, so if you value it on a, you know, well, you can't do a PPE basis because they don't have earnings. But if you value it on a cash flow, multiples of cash flow basis, it's still nutty, you know, like uh, even so let's say they do 300 million of operating cash flow uh, in 2018. Uh, I don't know if that's what they're projecting, but let's just assume, you know, then that's a uh, what hundred times, a uh, hundred times operating cash flow that they're trading at. So like you're telling me that if you buy St- uh, Spotify today, uh, you are assuming, you know, so much growth that you're willing to pay a hundred times the cash flow because cash flow really is how you should be valuing these companies a hundred times it's cash flow today now i mean it's not crazy like other other um it's not re- crazy stock, relative to other other stocks trade that way too but i think this gets back to something i mentioned a little bit before like what's the tam how many how much growth is left in spotify you know to to be willing to pay a hundred times cash flow for something you have to be willing to believe that there's so much growth that like that's gonna because essentially what you're doing right now is you are paying for 100 years of cash flow of spotify like the cash flow will repay your investment in 100 years you believe that there's a lot of growth that it's going to be a lot shorter than 100 years but like (laughs) i don't know can spotify double probably can they 10x i don't know I don't think so. 
Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how my anecdotal evidence is so much different than the numbers. Like what I said at the opening of this episode, and I said, it feels like pretty much everybody that is a millennial that is going to buy, you know, is going to subscribe to Spotify is already subscribed to Spotify. But if you look at, you know, what they, they, their reported uh, user growth, I mean, they, let's see, our 159 million monthly active users have grown 29% year over year as of December of 2017. So, and, and their premium subscribers have grown 46% year over year. So yeah, to your point, will they 2X? Probably. Will they 3X? Seems like they could get there. Will they 10X? Yeah. So then the other bet you're making is like, well, maybe they can improve their margins. That's like a big bet, you know, or can they offer another product? Or I mean, that, the other, product. the other piece here is they've got this audience, you know, can they start meaningfully doing ticket sales to concerts? Um, can they enter video in some way? Can they become the, the provider of podcasts, uh, and then figure out how to monetize that? I mean, it, there's, yeah, the, how much do you model in, uh, possibility of a bolt on business? Yeah. Whereas like when I look at Spotify is a great company for sure. I think I'm going to be very um, laudatory in grading this direct listing because I think it was the right thing to do. But it just in terms of like comparing, I can't help but compare Dropbox and Spotify's, you know, first public offerings because they're listings because they're back to back with, with Dropbox. Like I feel personally, I feel a lot better making that bet because the bet on Dropbox to me is a bet like, will the TAM increase? Will more people have a use case over time to share files in a like semi-professional sort of way versus with um, Spotify? Like, are more people going to listen to music and want to pay for Spotify who aren't already? Now they're going into more countries, but like how many more countries can they go into? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going into China. They did this deal with Tencent. um, So they do have exposure to China. Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I think it's time to go into grading and so, uh, listeners. Can I, are- I want to I sneak in a couple of tech themes first. Yeah, okay? I'll go for it. All right. I have three sort of interrelated tech themes that really we've covered all throughout the history and facts, but I think um, I think are are important here. And that's the importance of a couple key product decisions and only a couple key things like with spotify it was you know the focus on playlists it was uh, we didn't talk a lot about this but it was doing a desktop app not a web app because that enabled almost zero latency when you click play the file streamed and played immediately whereas some of their competitors because there were competitors remember groove shark and some of the others um they were all web apps the performance was kludgy people don't want to wait for music um just like a couple key product decisions that can really make the difference early on but then you have to couple that with distribution too like spotify would have done well without facebook but it wouldn't be a 30 billion dollar company without facebook um yeah and uh and then i think the related one to both of those that we just see time and time again on this show is like to do all that you have to be like you have to have such tenacity as a founder you have to have a vision it has to be right but then you gotta like work at it for and focus maniacally for many years uh years and years it took so long for spotify to even get off the ground and then to go country by country and then five years later come to the u.s or, or i guess uh, three four years later come to, no five years five years after founding come to the u.s um it just so, takes a long time yeah 
Daniel X only 35. I thought he was a the other thing. little older, but yeah, maybe he's only 35. I think that I think I saw that in the F1. Um, I mean, it's, looking at those companies, he started those companies before Spotify. Spotify has been 12 years and it's just um, impressive, yeah. passionate, motivated founder. Yeah, totally. All right. That's what I got. All right. So on grading listeners to clarify, though, we did just talk about, um, you know, do you feel like this is actually worth 30, 30 billion dollars? Um, the way that we grade is was, you know, on, on the typical acquired format, was it a good idea for the acquirer to pay this money for the acquiree? Um, the way that we grade IPOs and now DPOs is, um, was it a good move for the company to, um, to do this transaction? You know, was it, was this the right move for them? And so, um, you know, we're basically looking at three options here, do what they did IPO or don't do anything, stay private. Um, you know, keep, keep doing what they were doing. Uh, sure. Seems like a great call. I mean, they, they couldn't do nothing. They had to, they had to get liquidity. Um, they didn't need to raise money. It, it seems like they're not seeing any of the downsides that, that would have come from, um, potentially doing this direct listing instead of the IPO. I mean, the whole wall street community was a little freaked out and trying to naysay that, gosh, there's going to be all this volatility and it's going to drop below the last price that it was trading in the private rounds and the demand's not going to be there. And, you know, lots of things, but I, I don't think we're seeing any of that. So yeah. it seems like it was a great decision and a, a gutsy one at that. Yeah. Caveat that we're still early. It's only two days very. in. Uh, very early. <laughs> so a lot will depend on what happens over the next um, couple of weeks. But but thus far... Yeah, you know, thank you for that. Because we, we may need that clause. We, we may need that clause. But the fears were about what happened immediately after trading. Like the whole point of doing an IPO, the argument of the bankers is we're there to stabilize the stock, stabilize trading. If you go back and listen to our Facebook uh, IPO episode, they definitely needed the bankers to stabilize trading <laughs> in the stock because it was a rocky, rocky start. Um, but, you know, without the bankers there, what'll happen? And like everything's been stable. So, I, yeah. I, I hope. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to assign a grade to it per se. Like it feels weird to grade this against. We got to figure out what our, our actual, uh, sort of format is for for these IPOs because it, you know it's it's sort of like either it was an A probably not an A plus or it was like a C <laughs> it's, it's it seems rare that we're going to ever have an IPO decision that was an F or a DPO decision that was an F uh, we might maybe if we revisit the Snapchat IPO <laughs> <laughs> well, oh there you go there you um, go well, do you want yeah, me to first? Do you want me to? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say A. We just have like a lot. It's kind of silly for these on the scene ones to do any grading at all, but um, you know, all signs are positive right now. Yeah, I mean, if it, there is uh, stability now, now I do have some questions personally about a thirty billion dollar valuation for Spotify, uh, but that's what it's you know the market is saying. Um, but if, or at least that's it, what three three point two percent of shareholders who have sold have managed to get the market to say right right which is not a large float um so that may be artificially uh artificially supply constraining the stock and raising the price uh driving the mm -hmm. price up um but you know as long as there's not like panicked trading which it seems like there's not 
this seems like a good new path for companies to get liquidity, get out on the public markets. It would be great for Silicon Valley if like this becomes a viable path. Um, so, so far so good. Yeah. Hey, and if it does like Barry McCarthy, the CFO is going to be hailed as a genius. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Formal clinkle, former clinkle employee hailed as genius story. He's 11 come, come a long way. It's come a long way. <laughs> it's true. Uh, carve outs, well, carve outs. Um, so, uh, I can't remember if I've actually mentioned on the show or not, but, uh, I know I've talked a bunch about my, my wife, Jenny. Uh, she is, uh, the head of, um, audience engagement and education at San Francisco ballet here in San Francisco and the ballet. So if you, if you live in San Francisco, uh, you should come to the ballet anyway, cause it's awesome. Uh, the, I mean, the athletes, the dancers are, are amazing. It's wonderful to watch always. Um, but they're doing a big festival at the end of the season coming up, uh, at the end of this month in April, um, and uh, festival of new works. It's going to be really cool. Uh, and Jenny is, uh, hosting a number of, um, of panel discussions around it, but one is going to be called Silicon ballet, bringing ballet and technology together, the intersections of tech <laughs> and ballet. And it is, uh, it's at the end of the month, April 28th at five thirty PM. Uh, is it starring the- you and Jenny? <laughs> Uh, actually <laughs> neither of us are, are speaking on the panel. Um, but there are going to be some really cool, uh, participants. So, uh, if you're in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, uh, come, come to the ballet always, but, uh, but come see this panel. It'll be really cool. Awesome. Well, I finally saw black Panther and uh, nice. that movie was amazing and everybody should go see it. And it's uh remaining few, few days in theaters. Um, and even more awesome was the, uh, so Kendrick Lamar, uh, put together the soundtrack and he, um, did a couple of songs himself and guessed it on a couple of other songs and then handpicked a bunch of other artists and it's just powerful. Like it's a really, uh, um, it's maybe one of the best, maybe the best Marvel movie. I mean, the, 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 wow. the, um, the amazing sort of, uh, societal themes that are going on right now that they managed to pull into the movie and make extremely accessible and deal with really difficult topics um, and have a really cohesive story with great character development and stunning visuals. Um, I think I'm like the last person that to like be, <laughs> be talking about this and be aware of this. But um, if you haven't seen black Panther yet, I highly recommend it before it leaves theaters. It's uh, awesome. Yeah. I haven't been able to get to the theater to see it, but I definitely want to it. Uh, it looks awesome. Or go on Spotify and listen to the soundtrack. Well, that's what I was going to say is, can you get a playlist (laughs) of the soundtrack on Spotify? You can. You can. All right. We'll link to it in the show notes. We will. Spotify's new viral growth mechanic via the (laughs) Acquired acquired Podcast. that's right that's right all right listeners if you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more you can subscribe subscribe from your favorite podcast client um if you feel so feel so inclined we'd love a comment on breaker um if you haven't tried that out it's a cool podcasting app um uh please comment or like this episode and uh um create some virality of our own and uh if you're on itunes or uh, apple Podcasts, we'd love a review there too and of course uh um always appreciate sharing with your friends um if uh if if you like this episode so thanks so much for joining us um thanks to perkins cooey for sponsoring and we will see you next time see you next time